39, e continually giving harmonic parties to their friends, and I am sometimes compelled to a request they will allow me to conclude transcribing my lecture notes in tranquility a request, I am sorry to say, not often complied with, the smoke from their pipes fills the whole house, and the other night they knocked me up two hours after I had retired to a rest, for the loan of the jet of cold water from my wash and stand, to make grog with, and a little warbler, if I had one, with the words of the literary dustman in it, independently of these annoyances, I get on pretty well, and have already attracted the notice of my professors, who return my salutation very condescendingly, and tell me to look upon them rather as friends than teachers, the students here, generally speaking, are a dissipated and irreligious set of young men, and I can assure you I am often compelled to listen to a language that quite makes my ears jingle. I have found a very decent washerwoman, who mends for me as well, but, unfortunately, she washes for the house, and the initials of one of the students above me are the same as mine, so that I find our things are gradually changing hands, in which I had the worst, because his shirts and socks are somewhat dilapidated, or, to speak professionally, their fibrous texture abounds in organic lesions, and the worst island he never finds out the error until the end of the week, when he sends my things back, with his compliments, and thinks the washerwoman has made a mistake, I have not been to the theaters yet, nor do I feel the least wish to enter into any of the frivolities of the great metropolis, with kind regards to all at home, believe me, yours affectionately, Joseph Muff, I do adjure ye, answer any a valuable porcelain vase, which stood in one of the state rooms of Windsor Castle, has been recently broken, it is suspected by design, as the situation in which it was placed almost precludes the idea that it could have happened by accident. A commission, called the Flunky Inquisition, has been appointed by Sir Robert Peel, with Sithorpe at its head, to inquire into the affair. The gallant colonel declares that he has personally cross-examined all the housemaids, but that he has hitherto been unable to obtain a satisfactory solution of like master like man. Sir Robiardi Peel's workmen inside the House of Parliament have determined to follow the example of the Masons outside the House. If Mr. Walkley is to be appointed their foreman, inquest extraordinary on a coroner. Last night an inquest was held on the consistency of Thomas Walkley, Esquire member for Finsbury, and coroner for Middlesex. The deceased had been some time ailing but his demise was at length so sudden, that it was deemed necessary to public justice that an inquest should be taken of the unfortunate remains. The inquest was held at the vicar of Braytap, Palace Yard, and the jury, considering the neighborhood, was tolerably respectable. The remains of the deceased were in a dreadful state of decomposition, and although chloride of lime and other antiseptic fluids were plentifully scattered in the room, it was felt to be a service of danger to approach too closely to the defunct. Many members of Parliament were in attendance, and all of them, to a man, appeared very visibly shocked by the appearance of the body. Indeed they all of them seemed to gather a great moral lesson from the corpse. We know not whose turn it may be next. Was printed in the largest physiognomical type in every member's countenance. Thomas Duncombe, Esquire member for Finsbury, examined had known the deceased for some years, had the highest notion of the robustness of his constitution, would have taken any odds upon it deceased. However, within these last three or four weeks had flighty intervals, talked very much about the fine phrenological development of Sir Robert Peel's skull, had suspicions of the deceased from that moment. Deceased had been carefully watched, but to no avail. 
deceased inflicted a mortal wound upon himself on the first night of Sir Robert's premiership, and though he continued to rally for many evenings, he sunk the night before last. After a dying speech of twenty minutes, Colonel Sithorpe, member for Lincoln, examined new the deceased. Since the accession of Sir Robert Peel to power had had many conversations with the deceased upon the ministerial bench, had offered snuff box to the deceased. Deceased did not snuff. Deceased had said that he thought witness a man of high parliamentary genius, and that Sir Robert Peel ought to have made him witness either Lord Chamberlain or Chancellor of the Exchequer. In every other respect, deceased behaved himself quite rationally. There were at least twenty other witnesses members of the House of Commons in attendance to be examined, but the coroner put it to the jury whether they had not heard enough. The jury assent, and immediately returned a verdict philo de southeast. N.B. A member for Finsbury wanted next dissolution. A curious error. A member of the American legislature, remarkable for his absence of mind, exhibited a singular instance of this mental infirmity very lately, having to present a petition to the House. He presented himself instead, and did not discover his mistake until he was Sir Robiardipiolokuiduar. When erst the Whigs were in and I was out, I knew exactly what to be about, then all I had to do, through thick and thin, was but to get them out, and bob in, and now that I am in and they are out, the only thing that I can be about is to do nothing, but, through thick and thin, contrive to keep them out, and bobby in songs for the city. Number 3. Oh! Think not all who call thee fair are in their honeyed words sincere, and if they offer jewels rare, lend not too readily thine ear. The humble ring I lately gave may be despised by thee well. Let it, but marry, when I'm in my grave, think that I pawned my watch to get it. Others may talk of feasts of love, and banqueting upon thy charms, but did not I devotion prove, last Sunday, at the Stanhope Arms, my rival ordered tea for four. The waiter at his bidding laid it, he generously ran the score. Mary, I did more, I paid it, I know he's dashing, bold, and free, a friend of Jove, and I'll fire, but should he say he loves like me, I'd, like Apollo, strike the lyre, he says, he at your feet will throw his all, and, if his vows are steady, he cannot equal me for, oh, I've given you all I had, already, Mary, I had a second suit of clothes, of which the coat was braided, Mary, they went to buy that flute with which I be had serenade. Mary, I had a beaver hat. Then this I wear a great deal better, Mary. I've parted too with that. Four pens. Ink. Paper for this letter. Private correspondence. Dear Punch. Will you inform me whether the review of the troops noticed in last Saturday's times is to be found in the Edinburgh, Westminster, or quarterly? Yours. In all mayoralties. Peter Lorry. P.S. What do they mean by go along? Bob, Sir Bobby Peel, who, before he got into harness, professed himself able to draw the government truck, like bricks, has changed his note since he has been put to the trial, and he is now bawling lustily, don't hurry me, please give me a little time, Walkley, seeing the pitiable condition of the unfortunate animal, volunteered his services to push behind, and the Chartist and Tory may now be seen every night in Street Stevens, working cordially together and exhibiting an illustration of the benefits of a cons by our own colonel. Why is a loud laugh in the House of Commons like Napoleon Bonaparte? Because it's an emperor or an emperor. Why is a person getting rheumatic like one locking a cupboard door? Because he's turning achy a key. Why is one and sixpence like an aversion to coppers? Because it's hating pence eighteen pence. Punch's theater. 
Diachexian Doar. Rudolph of HAPSBURGH. Mysterious are thy ways, O Yates. Thou art the only true melodramatist of the stage and off the stage. When a new demonology is compiled thou shalt have an honorable place in it. Thou shalt be worshipped as the demon of novelty, even by the gods themselves. Thy deeds shall be recorded in history. It shall not be forgotten that thou wert the importer of Mademoiselle Jack, the tame elephant, of Monsieur Bohane, the gigantic Irishman, and of Signor Hervionano, the Cockney Italian dwarf. Never should we have seen the Bayadiers but for you, nor T.P. Cookin, the pilot, nor the Bedouin Arabs, nor the wreck ashore, nor bathing and sporting nymphs, nor other dramatic delicacies. Truly, thou art the luckiest of managers, for all thy efforts succeed, whether they deserve it or not. Sometimes thou drawest up an army of scene painters, mechanists, dancers, monsters, dwarfs, devils, fireworks, and water spots, in terrible array against common sense. Yet lo, thou dost conquer, thy pieces never misfire, they go on well with the public, and favorable are the press reports. Wert thou a Catholic thou wouldst be canonized, for evil spirits are thy passion, the Vatican itself cannot produce a more indefatigable devil's advocate. The repast now provided by Mr. Yates for those who are fond of supping full of horrors is a deville drama, interspersed with hydraulics consisting, in fact, of spirits and water, sweetened with songs and spiced with witches. At Island we are informed by the official announcements, a romantic burlette of witchcraft, in two acts, and a prologue, with entirely new scenery, dresses, and peculiar appointments, imagined by, and introduced under the direction of, Mr. Yates. Now, any person, entirely unprejudiced with a taste for devilry and free from hydrophobia, who sees this production, must have an unbounded opinion of the manager's imagination, what a head he must have for aquatic effects, in vain we look around for its parallel nothing but the new river head suggests itself, but our preface is detaining us from the prologue, the first words in which stamp the entire production with originality, assassins, who let themselves out by the job have long been pleasantly employed in melodramas, being mostly enacted by performers in the heavy line, but the author of, by Hexen M. Ryan, introduces a character hitherto unknown to the stage, namely, the comic cutthroat, Messrs. Gabor and Wolfstein, played by Mr. Wright, and the immortal Geoffrey Muffincap, Mr. Wilkinson, treat us with a dialogue concerning the blowing out of brains, and the incision of weasons, which is conceived and delivered with the broadest humor, Enlivened by the choicest of jokes, they have, we learn, been lately commissioned by Autocar to murder Rudolph, the exiled Duke of Habsburg, who was to pass that way, but he does not come, because his kind kinsman, Autocar, must have time to consult the godfathers and godmothers of the peace, or, which is of the Rhine, which he does in the storm-reft head of Zadwaran. This Zadwaran is a hospitable gentleman, who sings a good song, sees much company, and is played by that convivial genius Paul Bedford. Autocar is introduced amongst other friends to a speaking spirit, who, being personated by Miss Terry, utters a terrible prediction. We could not quite make out the purport of this augury, nor were we much grieved at the loss, feeling assured that the next two acts would be occupied in fulfilling it. The funny bravos present themselves in the next scene, and exit to stab one of two brothers, who goes off evidently for that purpose judiciously coming back to die in the arms of Count Rudolph, for whom he has been mistaken, 
Under such circumstances it is but fair that the prince should repay the obligation he owes his friend for being killed in his stead, by promising protection to the widow and child. The oath he takes would be doubly binding for he promises to become a brother to the wife, and not content with thus making himself the child's uncle, swears to be his father too. If the husband did not die before he has had time to utter his wife's name, all these affairs having been settled, the prologue which used to be called the first act ends. Fifteen years are supposed to elapse before the curtain is again rolled up, and that this illusion may be rendered the more perfect. The audience is kept waiting about three times fifteen minutes, to amuse one another during the entract. We next learn that Rudolph is seated upon his ducal throne, fortunate in the possession of a paragon wife, and a steward of the household not to be equaled no other than Ottokar that particular friend, who, in the prologue, tried to get a finished foot to his mortal career. The jocose ruffians here enliven the scene one by being cast into a dungeon for asking Ottokar evidently the culvern of his day, an exorbitant price for the copyright of a certain manuscript, the other, by calling the courtier a man of genius, and being taken into his service, as no doubt, first robber, to support this character, a change of apparel is necessary, and no wonder, for Wolfstein has on precisely the same clothes he wore fifteen years before. His first job is to steal a casket, but is declined, probably, because Wolfstein, being a professor of the capital crime, considers near larceny infradig. A second robber must therefore be hired, and Ottokar has one already preserved in the castle dungeons, in the person of a dumb prisoner. Dummy comes on, and the auditors at once recognize the brother who was not murdered in the prologue. He steals the casket, and Ottokar steals off. The Duke and Duchess next enter into a dialogue, the subject of which is one Wilhelm, a young standard-bearer, who appears, and having said a few words exits, that Ida, the Duchess, might inform us, in a soliloquy, what we have already shrewdly suspected, namely that the ensign is her son, another presentiment comes into one's mind, which one don't think it fair to the author and his story to entertain till the proper time. A sort of secret interview between the mother and son now takes place which ends by the imprisonment of the latter, why is not explained at the moment, nor, indeed, till the next scene, when it is quite apparent, for if one sees an impregnable castle, rigidly guarded by supernumeraries, with an impassable river, bristling with shave de frise it is impossible to get over, and a moat that it would be death to cross, a prison escape may be surely calculated upon, in the present instance, this formulary is not omitted, for Wilhelm jumps into the river from a bridge which he has contrived to reach, though several shots are fired into the tank of water that represents the Rhine. There is no hissing, on the contrary. The second act ends amidst general applause, which indeed it deserves, for the scenery is magnificent. The ancient arch in the Black Forest is a sort of house of call for witches, and it being seen during their merrymaking, or holiday, is rendered more picturesque by the devils, ha, ha. The hospitable Zadaran entertains hundreds of witches, of all sorts and sizes, who dance all manner of country dances, and sing a series of songs and choruses, in which the hog, hog, is again conspicuously introduced. It seems that German witches not only ride upon brooms, but sweep with them, and a company of supernatural jack rags perform sundry gyrations peculiarly interesting to housemaids. After about an hour's dancing, the witches being naturally blown are just in queue for leaving off with an airy dance called the Witch's Whirlwind. This episode over, the plot goes on. Ottokar accuses Ida of infidelity with Wilhelm to the Duke, she, 
in explanation, fulfills the presentiment we had some delicacy in hinting too soon that she is the wife of the man who was killed in the prologue, Rudolph having married her in ignorance of that fact, and by a coincidence which, though intensely melodramatic, everybody foresees who has ever been three times to the Adelphi Theatre. To describe the last scene would be the height of presumption and punch. Nobody but Satan, Montgomery, or the Adelphi Playbill, is equal to the task. We quote, as preferable, the latter authority, grand inauguration of Wilhelm, the rightful heir, coral caves and crystal streams, these are actually obtained by a hydrocenic effect, as the usual area devoted to illusion becomes a reality, besides all this, which simply means, real water, there is a Neptune in a car drawn by three seoric theological horses, having fins and web feet, there is a devil that is seen through the whole piece because he is supposed to be invisible cleverly played by Mr. Wheeland, and who having dived into the water, is fished out of it, and sent flying into the flies, the sending of devil upward, is a new way of being dripping wet, the demon in his ascent seriously incommodes Neptune, who, not being used to the water, looks about in great distress, evidently for an umbrella, after several glares of several colored fires, the curtain falls, seriously, the scenic effects of this piece do great credit to Mr. Yates's imagination, and to the handiwork of his own peculiar artists. It is very proper that they should be immortalized in the advertisements, by which the public are informed that the scenery is by Pitt, whereas Tompkins, and others, the machinery by Mr. Haley, and the lightning by the direction of Mr. Althwaite. That will the public be satisfied with such scanty information? Who? They will ask the manager. Rolls the thunder? who supplies the colored fires, who flashes the lightning, who beats the gong, who grinds up the curtain. Let Mr. Yates be speedy in relieving the breathless curiosity of his patrons on these points, or look to his benches. Punch. O are the London C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I. Volume 1. For the week ending October 16, 1841. Trade Report. From our own reporter. The market has been in a most extraordinary state all the morning. Our first advices informed us that feathers were getting very heavy, and that lead was a great deal brisker than usual. In the fish market, flounders were not so flat as they had been, and, to the surprise of everyone, were coming round rapidly. The deliveries of teller were very numerous, and gave a smoothness to the transactions of the day, which had a visible effect on business. Every species of fats were in high demand but the glut of mutton gave a temporary check to the general facility of the ordinary operations. The milk market is in an unsettled state, the late rains having caused an unusual abundance. A large order for skin, for the use of a parish union, gave liveliness to the latter portion of the day, which had been exceedingly gloomy during the whole morning. We had a long conversation in the afternoon with a gentleman who was up to every move in the poultry market and his opinion island that the flowering system must soon prove the destruction of fair and foul commerce. We do not wish to be premature, but our informant is a person in whom we place the utmost reliance, and, indeed, there is every reason why we should depend upon so respectable an authority. Cotton is in a dull state. We saw only one ball in the market, and even that was not in a dealer's hands, but was being used by a basket woman, who was darning a stocking. After this, who can be surprised at the stoppage of the factories, nothing was done in gloves, and what few sales were affected, seemed to be merely for the purpose of keeping the hand in with a view to future dealings, the geology of society, the study of geology, in the narrow acceptation of the word, 
is confined to the investigation of the materials which compose this terrestrial globe, in its more extended signification, it relates, also, to the examination of the different layers or strata of society, as they are to be met with in the world, society is divided into three great strata, called high life middle life and low life, each of these strata contains several classes, which have been ranged in the following order, descending from the highest to the lowest that island from the drawing room of Street James's to the cellar in Street Giles's, St. James's series, H people wearing coronets, I superior people related to coronets, G class, people having no coronet, but who would expect to get one, H people who talk of their grandfathers, and keep a carriage, LIF secondary, the Russell Square group, people who keep a carriage, but are silent respecting their grandfathers, people who give dinners to the superior series, people who talk of the four percents, and are suspected of being mixed up in a grocery concern and transition in the city, I-class, D-clap and group, D-people who, confess the cape, and say, that though Elpa amuses himself in the dry salter line in Ethan Church Street, he needn't do it if he didn't like, L-people who keep a shop, concern, and a one-horse I-shave, and go to a Ramsgate for three weeks in the F-dog days, the people who keep a, concern, but no shade, do the genteel with the light porter in livery on solemn occasions, people, known as, shabby genteels, who prefer metamorphic walking to a riding, and study kids, how to a live class, on a hundred a year, L inferior series, the white chapel group, W people who dine at one o'clock, and drink stout out of the pewter, at the white conduit gardens, L.I. people who think bluchers fashionable, and ride in F. primitive pleasure, once, to a Richmond on Sundays in summer, E. formation, St. Giles's group, tag rag and bobtail in varieties, it will be seen, by a glance at the above table, that the three great divisions of society, namely, high life, low life, and middle life, are subdivided, or more properly, subclassed, into the superior, transition, and metamorphic classes, Lower still than these in the social scale is the primitive formation which may be described as the basis and support of all the other classes. The individuals comprising it may be distinguished by their ragged surface, and shocking bad hats, they effervesce strongly with gin or Irish whiskey. This class comprehends the Street Giles's group which is the lowest of all the others, and is found only in the Great London Basin and that portion of the Whitechapel group whose individuals wear bluchers and ride in pleasure once to a Richmond on Sundays. In man's economy the Street Giles's group are exceedingly important, being usually employed in the erection of buildings, where their great durability and hog-bearing qualities are conspicuous. Next in order is the metamorphic class so-called, because of the singular metamorphosis that once a week takes place amongst its individuals, their common everyday appearance, which approaches nearly to that of the Street Giles's group, being changed, on Sundays, to a variegated colored surface with bright buttons and a shining, 4M9, goss. This class includes the upper portion of the Whitechapel group, and the two lower strata of the Clapham group. The Whitechapel group is the most elevated layer of the inferior series. The shabby genteel stratum occupies a wide extent on the Surrey side of the water. It is part of the Clapham group, and is found in large quantities in the neighborhood of Cannington, Vauxhall, and the Old Camp Road. A large vein of it is also to be met with at Mile End and Chelsea. It is the lowest of the secondary formation. The stratum is characterized by its fossil remains a great variety of miscellaneous articles such as watches, rings, 
and silk waistcoats and snuff boxes being found firmly embedded in what are technically termed avuncular depositories. The deposition of these matters has been referred by the curious to various causes, the most general supposition being, a peremptory demand for rent, or the like, on some particular occasion, when they were carried either by the owner, his wife, or daughter, from their original to their present position, and left amongst an accumulation of popped articles from various districts. The chief evidence on this point is not derived from the fossils themselves, but from their duplicates, which afford the most satisfactory proof of the period at which they were deposited. Articles which appear originally to have belonged to the neighborhood of Belgrave Square have been frequently found in the depositories of the district between Bethnal Green and Spindlefields. By what social deluge they could have been conveyed to such a distance, is a question that has long puzzled the ablest geologists. Immediately above the shabby genteel stratum are found the people who keep a shop concern, but no shade, it is the uppermost layer of the metamorphic class, and, in some instances, may be detected mingling with the supergenteel Clapham group. The shop and no shade stratum forms a considerable portion of the London basin. It is characterized by its coarseness of texture, and a conglomeration of the parts of speech. Its animal remains usually consist of retired licensed vintlers and obese tallow chandlers, who are generally found in beds of soft formation, separated from superincumbent layers of Marseille quilts, by interposing strata of thick double with nice. Having proceeded thus far upwards in the social formation, we shall pause until next week, when we shall commence with the lower portion of the transition class the shop and shape people, and, as we hope, convince our readers of the immense importance of our subject and the great advantage of studying the strata of human life Coventry's wise precaution. Some person was relating to the Earl of Coventry the strange fact that the Earl of Devon's Harriers last week gave chase, in his domain, to an unhappy donkey, whom they tore to pieces before they could be called off, upon which his lordship asked for a piece of chalk and a slate, and composed the following judestry on the circumstance, I'm truly shocked that Devon's hounds the gent lass has slain, for me to shun his lordship's grounds. It seems a warning plain. Continuations from China. It is generally reported that the usual drill continuations of the British Tars are about to be altered by those manning the fleet off China, who purpose adopting Nankin as soon as possible. The very, next, Jonathan. There is a Quaker in New Orleans so desperate upright in all his dealings, that he won't sit down to eat his meals. Poor Jack. A sailor ashore, after a long cruise, is a natural curiosity. 24 hours liberty has made him the happiest dog in existence, and the only drawback to his perfect felicity, is the difficulty of getting rid of his prize money within the allotted time. It must, however, be confessed, that he displays a vast deal of ingenuity in devising novel modes of spending his rhino, watches, trinkets, fiddlers, coaches, grog, and girls, are the long-established and legitimate modes of clearing out his lockers but even these means are sometimes found inadequate to effect the desired object with sufficient rapidity, when there happens to be a number of brother tars similarly employed, who have engaged all the coaches, fiddlers, and sweethearts in the town. It is then that Jack is put to his wit's end, and it is only by buying cocked hats and top boots for the boat's crew, or some such absurdity, that he can get all his cash scattered before he is obliged to return on board. This is a picture of a sailor ashore but a sailor aground is a different being altogether, an unlucky shot may deprive him of a leg or arm, he may be frost-nipped at the pole, or get a coup de soleil in the tropics, and then be turned upon the world to shape his course amongst its rocks and shallows, 
with the bitter blast of poverty in his teeth. But Jack is not to be beaten so easily, although run aground. He refuses to strike his flag, and, with a cheerful heart, goes forth into the highways and ways to sink the dangers of the sea, and, to collect from the pitying passers-by, the coppers that drop, like angel visits, into his little oilskin hat, these nautical melodists, with voices as rough as their beards, are to be met with everywhere, but they abound chiefly in the neighborhood of Deptford and Wapping, where they seem to be indigenous, the most remarkable specimen of the class may, however, frequently be seen about the streets of London, carrying at his back a good-sized box, inside which, and peeping through a sort of porthole, a pretty little girl of some two years old exhibits her chubby face, surmounting the box, a small model of a frigate, all aton and ship-shape, represents, Her Majesty's God bless her, frigate Billy Ruffian, on board of which the exhibitor lost his blessed limb, Jack we call him Jack, though we confess we are uncertain of his baptismal appellation because Jack is a sort of generic name for his species Jack prides himself on his little pole and his little ship, which he boasts are the miniature counterparts of their lovely originals, and with these at his back, trudges merrily along, trusting that providence will help him to keep a southerly wind out of the bread bag. Jack's songs, as we have remarked, all relate to the sea he is a complete repository of Gibbon's choice old ballads and folksal chants. Tom Bowling, Lovely Mon, Poor Jack, and Lashed to the Helm.